embrace diversification. Maybe it's not the equity that's going to come through to you. Maybe it's the volatility. Maybe it's the uh, the uh, the the commodities. Maybe it's finally it's gold as we talked about. But but just make sure that you are not caught in a situation where you need a equity return, because as we leave this year, we have the highest metrics in terms of valuation. We have the highest participation by retail ever. We have the most uh, exposed leveraging ever in terms of margin and capital. And we have the lowest transaction cost, which creates more volume by itself. Last time you were on, you were extremely generous and just opening the full kimono and letting us know how the Saxo uh, portfolio was positioned in terms of what percentage you had invested in, in different uh, asset classes. Uh, are you comfortable sharing the, the current allocation with us here? Absolutely, because it's exactly the same as last year. <laughs> so, uh, All right. well, for those who didn't watch last year, if you could dial through again, it's very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've, I've created this portfolio, which I, I, to be honest, borrowed heavily from Artemis Chris Cole from. But but I, I built build on that model where I basically say that the future for investors needs to be built on the fact that we have the ability to have a, you know not being depending on any economic cycle or even inflation. So you know very quickly it's 35% in equity. It's in total 13% in fixed income. It is 10% uh, in commodity, 10% in gold, 7% in crypto, 5% in volatility, and 20% in real estate. And uh, the model is doing shockingly well. And, and, and maybe the single most important point, it, all of this is being rebalanced once a month in order to take the whatever drift has been in these weights back to the same. So the whole model is to always have a constant exposure to the market. And that's how I run 75% of my money and the advisory money I have uh, to, to look after. And then I play with the 25% is what you and I used to call alpha trading. And to be honest, the older I grow, uh, the more I realize that I should really just stay away from being alphaing anything. But, but, but once in a while, I, uh, I get nervous or excited and, and I can use that as a leverage short term. But the bulk of my uh, business is, is during that. And, and since we talked last year, this model is up 27% with uh, a sharp close to two. And, and it's just too good. So, so you know, I, I didn't probably shouldn't have recommended it to anybody because I'm sure now is, is this is the perfect storm coming for this model. But the point, as you can see in the construction of this model is that you have volatility long as an expression. You can buy that in an ETF. And that is the only asset right now, which is 100% on core or negatively correlated to the risk on scenario. You, you cannot buy any other assets, in my opinion, in the market that is uncorrelated. Then you can discuss whether crypto sometimes has an, a, 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 a non-correlation or small correlation. But I think what we've seen with crypto recently is that it is at least, at a bare minimum, liquidity constraint. So if there is a, as right now, an, an outlook that uh, liquidity through accelerated tapings going away, it tends to come down. But, but long volatility is the only one. Uh, I will say for this year's carry in terms of the model, of course, crypto has done well, but just as well has been uh, uh, real estate, public real estate. You can buy that as an ETF as well, or you can buy individual company if you want to be more selective. Uh, say you want to play on the infra infrastructure, uh, real estate, relatives, commercial, wherever, or you can just buy buy and grow the. The beauty of this model, to some extent, is the cost of running it is very small. You can express this in pretty much an ETF portfolio without any any issue at all. Uh, meaning that. You know, you, you can uh, you can sack your financial advice and just run this yourself. All right. And you just buy sort of the, the dominant ETFs in each of those different categories. Uh, min minimum size, uh, minimum liquidity provisions. I, I, I think if uh, we probably shouldn't do too commercial, too much commercial for, for other financial institution, but uh, it is a lot of iShares and it's a lot of uh, Invesco uh, ETFs that, that can cater for this this portfolio construction. All right. And just a couple quick questions about some of those allocations. So, you know, earlier we talked about how you think inflation is going to still be quite elevated for 2022. Um, we talked about the massive pivot that seems like is in process, uh, at least with the Federal Reserve. We'll see if any other central banks follow suit. But um, if we expect, um, 
you know, potential rate increases going forward and high inflation, a lot of people would say, gosh, bonds are the worst place to be in that type of environment. Um, does that tempt you to decrease your percent allocation to fixed income? Or is that just sort of the beauty of the model where one, one part does well, one part goes down, but it gives you that diversification just in case your main thesis is wrong? Just, just for perspective, the last two months in uh, fixed income has been beautiful, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, despite the fact we expect the tightening, uh, you know, the back end of, of uh, so uh, ETF like IEF has done well. But I should probably disclaim that the fixed income mix is five uh, percent government uh, bonds and then eight uh, percent inflation linked. All right. So you have tips or other equivalents in there to help. I, I, I use exactly the tip equivalent. Uh, and of course, you can say I'm not getting my money back, but that's not the point. The point is to have exposure to all of these uh, to all of these asset class. I mean, in Jewish tradition, I think any any Jewish boy or girl is brought up with the fact that their father tells them you, you have to have free asset classes, real estate, cash and uh, commodities. Right. That that's been sort of the tradition, and then you 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 switch around and, and make it equal weight. And in the modern version, we have these uh, you know four four quadrants of uh, which uh, you know some of the biggest hedge funds build on that. You have 25% equity, 25% in fixed income, 25% in commodities, and 25% in in cash or, or cash equivalent. And, you know that 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 modeling has bid has beaten 80% of all active fund managers in the world, just having no view in the market, but constantly rotating back to the same exposure. So that there's a whole academic support for all this. And, and maybe, and I think I keep bringing this up, but I think it's important. You have to realize, Adam, that 90 to 95% of return is the first day that you invest, because that's the day you decide exactly what you're asking me, how much money do you put in the different asset classes? The rest is just a one big fat mean reversion process over time. But what actually makes a difference is how much you have in equity, how diversified you are across the board, across all economic environments. And then that sounds ironic because I've been a trader since I was uh, uh, less than 57. I've been a trader for more than 30 years. And I come full circle to realize that why didn't anyone teach me this when I was 21? I, I could have done a huge amount of other things when, instead of sitting trying to predict the market on a daily basis uh, using this. Yeah, you just could have gone out farming and, uh, and let the model take care of itself. I think with these hands, it's probably good that I stayed outside of farming, to be honest. I'm absolutely <laughs> hopeless. I'm, I'm forbidden to do any uh, farm work. Uh, well, look, um, one more question about the allocation here. Really, two more questions, but they're very related. Um, Last time when we talked, I think back in May, um, you had both said, "Hey, you know, the the I see the commodities commodities are in their early innings, right?" Um, and then in particular, you said that the gold and silver space, I think both the miner, the metals and the miners, looked. I think the quote was quite beautiful. Um, we've certainly seen, you know, continued support for the commodity sector. You know, I'd say, look, you know, gold and silver have kind of kind of languished since May. They've gone up a little bit, they've gone down, but they haven't really broken out yet. Um, what is your current outlook on the commodity complex in general um, and the gold sector specifically looking forward for next year, given the trends that you talked about? So on the, on the general commodity, I'm happy we're doing this interview today and not a week ago, because of course, what has happened this week is the China's had the working council which sets the economic agenda for China. And what is becoming evident now is that China needs to stabilize. So the key word for 22 is stability. But stability is relative to a falling GDP and a need to contain the Evergrande and the fallout from the property sector. The property sector in China is not only a big importer of commodities, but it's also in full percentage point of the GDP, about 20% of the overall economy. Until this week, it looks like we will have a drag of 5 to 10% in the property sector next year. Now it looks like they're trying to ring, ring things Evergrande. They're going to increase the amount of credit in the system. And ultimately, they may have to tweak the interest rate as well. Why I'm saying all this? Because China is, for iron ore and some of the dominant uh, commodities, the number one uh, buyer. The Which is something we talked about two, three years ago. The credit impulse for China has been negative. 
but it has bottomed out. Actually, if you see it, electricity consumption is going up, and there's a pretty good correlation between electricity consumption and the credit impulse in China. So what I'm saying is that China is coming online again as a buyer, as the first buyer of many products, especially the sort of the more property uh, and overall economy economic uh, uh, metals. We, we see some demand from that. I am pretty sure that if you look at the uh, green transformation process, the, just the fact that they fail to understand what they're do the, uh, doing, the politician, doesn't mean they're going to do less. They will do more. That will be the first response by any politician is to the reason it doesn't work is that they didn't go big enough. That's been the policy of Fed. It's been the policy of the U.S. government. So they keep increasing the spend. So the net new buyer of commodity will be the electoral, uh, the green transformation space. And and then finally, I think uh, that, uh, you know, when we come through the, the, the early parts of 2022 on the dollar side, I think we will we'll have a stronger dollar while we have a tight fiscal policy combined with a relatively big uh, sort of uh, uh, tailwind from fiscal. But when that is replaced by the market starting to price less rate hikes and the likes, the dollar will come down. So I'm still very bullish and I still stick to the point that we are in a, in a, in a commodity cycle that's on the upside. In copper, you have a big, uh, the stories of copper is one of the lowest we've seen in many years. And, and and as I said, you know, fundamentally, Adam, I think everything that's driven me in the last 24 months is the concept and the understanding that what is Fed and monetary, Fed's monetary policy and, and fiscal has done is it is it, it has tried to exceed the gravity of economic laws that dictates you can only create so much demand that that the supply side can deliver. We, we are not one, two percent away from a equilibrium between supply and demand. We are at one or two, three, four standard deviation away from actually reestablishing demand uh, and, and, and supply uh, equilibrium. You see that by container ship. You see when you talk to people in the logistic industry. So for me, pretty clearly, this this is still the story. And, and for the record, I think one of the things I put up last year, logistics is the best performing basket we have outside of uh, of, uh, of uh, crypto this year. All right. So so massive tailwind, it seems like, of, of demand for commodities for the foreseeable future. A big part of that, I see you nodding here, but a big part of that sort of is your, the physical infrastructure is the limiting factor on the economy now. And, and either just it, we need more stuff to build that out and upgrade it and whatnot. Um, gold, real quickly. Yeah. So I think... When we trade gold and silver, we have a tendency to to mock around with thirty, forty, fifty dollars range. What we have to look at in history is that gold is like a step ladder and silver as well. It's a step ladder move. All of a sudden, we move thousand dollars because inflation is out of whack. The reason gold has not taken out eighteen thirty, eighteen fifty is clear that the market still is pricing that inflation will peter out at, at, and peak in, in in June, July. And I think I made the case today that I don't think that's the case. I actually think it's going to continue to longer. So I do expect fully to have, and, and again, I have no predictive power, but in my book, we, we will be trading $1,000 higher at the end of next year, simply because inflation is more deeply rooted and structural. And the long-term expected inflation will be 4%, not the 2% that, that Fed is trying to achieve. Okay. Wow. All right. Um, you just perked a lot of people's ears up there, but uh, appreciate that. Um, all right. So um, very quickly, as we wrap up here, um, we gave a little bit of a nod to your outrageous predictions, which is something that you do every year. Um, we don't have time to go into them in great detail here, but if you could pick maybe one or two from your list of outrageous predictions that we haven't talked about yet, that you think would just be, you know, worthwhile or fun at least to put on people's radars for what might happen next year that would be coming out of left field. Uh, are there one or two that you, you particularly like? Yeah, actually, we, we kind of indirectly touched them. But I think the, the big one is that uh, uh, the green transformation gets a rain check. So that's the reclassification. I think that is a, a prudent one. And, I, and the one that really concerns me from a political perspective, which actually closes in political terms to the divide between the young and the old is the fact that we think down the line, all these pension money, which for governments is debt money, is going to be taxed. So I, I foresee a future where 10 to 20% of your pension, uh, Adam, will be dictated by the government to go to buy America first, infrastructure, military spending, catching up on the, on the, on the, uh, 
on, on the chip side or whatever. So they're going to purpose build some vehicles. You are forced to buy these bonds with a certain ratio of your of your portfolio pension money because they, they will argue from a political point of view that, but Adam, you've saved so much money. You benefit for low interest rate or whatever. The best way for you to give money back to the youth and invest in the future is actually letting the government dictate to you where we should spend the money uh, over time. It's certainly going to happen in Europe, and I'm pretty sure we have in America, either force fed or, or indirectly because that's the only way in in a country like the us where you run a five to seven percent uh, budget deficit for, from now to 2050 if you want to raise capital for make america great again this good old uh, <laughs> uh saying from mr trump that way you need capital and that capital needs to be force fed into the system and the only way i see that happening is by going in and forcing investors and in particular, pension systems to do it. They're already pretty much doing themselves by by embracing this ESG movement. But imagine the government comes and says, you know, 20% of, of Adam Taggart's portfolio needs to be in this government bond, which is supporting credit and contributive facilitation for the green transformation, for infrastructure, new airports. And 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 you're doing this, Adam, because you're going to help the uh, the young generation. Yeah, that becomes your patriotic duty. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. We have a, you know, we recently did a survey of our audience. You know, our, our folks skew on the older side. So I'm sure we have a number of people with pensions watching this program who, again, are probably just opened a few eyes there. Um, all right. Last, last kind of macro question. Um, you talked about uh, a, you think there's a 30% chance of a market correction in, in 2022. Um you know, lots of people talking about how, you know, historically overvalued the markets are, how addicted the markets are to low rates, uh, unlimited cheap liquidity, et cetera. Sounds like you think 2022 is going to be almost the opposite of all of that, right? Where the, the stimulus is ending, rates are going up, um, inflation is going to be raging, which of course decreases pro uh, profit margins at these companies. So, I guess, why is that percentage not higher than 30%? And if there is a correction, do you have a sense of how big you think it might be? Is it a 20% correction or like Grantham, is it a 50 plus percent correction? No, so, so I think the, the opposite view is that we do the accelerated tapering. The market comes into 22 with uh, expectation of, let's call it uh, consensus free rate hikes. Through the process of doing that, the market uh, realized in when Fed doesn't hike in March, which I think is likely they will do right now, but if they don't do that, then the market starts to say, hang on a minute, Federal Reserve has now done the tapering, they're done with that, they've removed the liquidity, but actually the threshold of raising interest rate is too high, the economic cost is too high, so what the market will do for them instead is to take it from three to two to one to zero hike. So basically, the Fed needs to maintain a hawkish stand because of the story I told early on about the 8 million versus the 200, but the market could all of a sudden come to the rescue, and, and, and you know, the equity market always loves to be on the dovish side, right? So... So I actually think we need an acceleration in the energy cost or in the social cost or in some some dynamics needs to change. Everything being on unchanged in terms of how we operate as expected, maybe is the better way to phrase it. Then I think the market will take away the free interest rate hikes and make it one or zero, which will be seen as benign. So then instead we have a market which is plus minus 10% for next year. I don't think it's going to be a bumper year because removing liquidity can never be a good story for a market which is dependent on liquidity, which is the, the thing you said yourself, Adam. But the 70% probability is all the same mechanics in terms of tapering, some removing liquidity, but actually instead of Fed indicating that they will cut rates, they will continue to be hoggish. And through that, the market will say, oh, hang on I mean, The Fed is only saying this to achieve exactly that goal. So we will take all of the expected hikes out of the marketplace. And in that sense, the financial condition then eased up again. Okay, I, I totally get that. I'm gonna ask a question that might be a little naive then, which is um, uh, if you think the Fed is being sort of excessively hawkish right now and telling the market, we're definitely gonna tighten, we're definitely gonna uh, raise rates. Um, but as time goes on next year, you know, it seems like the Fed is just going to stop after it tapers and not raise rates that the market is going to, you know, kind of counterbalance that it's going to become more optimistic. Right. But if, 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 assume for a minute that's the case and that happens. Does the Fed kind of get a free lunch here in the sense that, you know, even if the markets are concerned right now about several rate hikes, they haven't corrected. You know, they've done nothing but go up since 
you know, May of 2020, right? We, we haven't had any, any material, you know, froth come out of it. So can they really manage to get through all that without the markets actually dropping materially? I mean, you're really asking me what is the financial conditions by the end of this. And, and remember, the financial condition is really dictated overall by the stock market. So if you want to make a, a tighter financial condition, you need the stock market to come down. So I think to some extent, the, the White House is sanctioning a 10 to 20 percent correction. I don't think they're sanctioning a 30 percent, but I do think the Fed put, if that's the way we should phrase it, used to be 10 to 12 percent now i think it's 20 to 25 percent exactly for that reason they can see why a financial condition tightening will work and if the market can do the work for them it's a far better situation than them showing up and not having the ability to talk the market down because i think the the the, the counter argument to what you're saying is it's going to be very difficult for fed to stand in june and say exactly for all the reasons you said to say oh hang on a minute we're going to you know be on pause now we're going to be retiring uh you know, the, the expansion height. They can't do that because simply the political mandate is too strong. It's all across. It's all the advisors. It's all of the, most of the Democratic con uh, caucuses as well is saying you need to protect our voters. That's how we get not only the midterm election, but also how we prep ourselves for the next presidential election. We cannot go into a presidential election with too high inflation because we know what happened in, during the Carter administration. That's why anyone who wants to use a historic analogy really need to understand what happened around the Carter time. I mean, again, in all of American president's history, there are only two in, in the history of Fed that's been uh, been asked by their president to high grades. And that's why it's so unprecedented. So, you know, I, I make the 70-30 because, you know, I work for a bank and I have to, if, if personally, you know, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, my personal personal view is that it's going to be very difficult for Fed not to deliver, to deliver two hikes, even though it's too late. Because it is five minutes past 12, Adam. It's it's not going to make one iota of difference because right. it's already There's too late. no way to avoid the problem here. It's just managing how bad it's going to be at this point. Yeah, and you can get a slightly benign if the market adjusts for you. Fed can do nothing. I mean, Fed is done. Nothing they can do to the market now. Because more liquidity is not going to give you more electricity. It's not going to give you better food prices. I mean, so, and the fiscal side, you know, we know politically it's impossible. But even if you did more fiscal, you're making the demand side much larger again relative to that supply that is inelastic. And it's inelastic because you don't invest in the cables that is needed, which is the fossil energy generation and the green transformation. Uh, so, I think we. that's why I keep saying is, and it's a big statement, I know, but I, I really think we're in the road in the ability to, to navigate this without something going amiss. All right, sir. Um, I would still love to take another hour here. Um, uh, unfortunately, we can't, and it's much, much later your time there in Copenhagen. Um, last question for you. Um, you know, folks watching this are regular investors just trying to navigate what's coming down the pike here. Um, you're very generous in dialing through your, your portfolio allocation. Just parting question is, do you have any other bits of counsel for the advisor that's trying to make sense of what's going on here and trying to navigate all this without becoming undue collateral damage, either to having inflation destroy you know, the purchasing power of their wealth um, or getting caught up in some sort of market dislocation like we were just talking about? Embrace diversification. The only free thing the market offers you is diversification. That is the only free things the market gives you. So, so talk to your financial advisors. Go for the diversification. You know, you gotta be in the stock market. Of course, you do because that's where you div you ripe the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 liquidity of that market. You you gotta be in commodities because they have a carry now. It's even a carry trade, uh, especially in agriculture. And you, you need to be fully exposed to everything that can happen. So position yourself such that if you're wrong, it costs you 10%. And if you're right, it's, it's going to give you 20% over the next couple of years. And I think you can still do that at these elevated levels because maybe it's not the equity that's going to come through to you. Maybe it's the volatility. Maybe it's the uh, the, uh, the the commodities. Maybe it's finally it's gold, as we talk about. But But just make sure that you are not caught in a situation where you need a equity return. Because as we leave this year, we have the highest metrics in terms of valuation. We have the highest participation by retail ever. We have the most uh, exposed leveraging ever in terms of margin and capital. 
and we have the lowest transaction cost, which creates more volume by itself. So just make sure, talk to your financial advisors, talk to your good friends who's a smart guy. But the advice is back to what I said earlier, 90% of your turn is how your assets is just distributed against the market. It's not going to be 90% that makes you a lot of money over the next five years. All right, great, great counsel. And uh, we've got the guys from New Harbor, the financial advisor you know, that join me every week on this program coming up in just a minute. So that's a great segue into them. Steen, as I let you go here, for people that have really enjoyed hearing your um, perspective here and would like to follow you in your work, how can they do that? Yeah, so it's it's pretty easy. Sexual sexual insights uh, on a on a Google search and and on Twitter we are we are very very uh, uh, visible in terms of what we do. But all our research is free. Uh, I have to say I am uh, the person who does the least amount of uh, publications. But I have an asset class team in equity, fixed income, commodities, uh, uh, crypto, everything. So so to just look up sexual sexual strats or sexual. Uh, uh, insights and then you get uh, free access to all this research without even having uh, to do anything but just look up the URL. Fantastic. Well, uh, Steen, when I edit this, I'll put the URLs uh, that you just mentioned, your Twitter handle and whatnot up on the screen so folks know how to find them easily. Well, Steen, again, can't thank you enough. Another wonderful conversation. Um, look forward to having you back on as 2022 gets kicked off so that you can kind of, you know, give us a, a real-time update as to how things are going. But um, Thanks so much again, my friend. Great to see you and have a great night there in Denmark. Thank you, Adam. And uh, best of holidays to, to all the viewers and you and your family and be safe in this uh, outrageous time. All right. Now's the time on the program where we talk to the lead partners at New Harbor Financial, Wealthy on endorsed financial advisor. John, really curious to hear what you have to say about uh, what Steen just said. I know Mike's away this week, so you're going to have to carry the heavy lifting here. Yeah, Steen, Steen uh, always comes with uh, lots of uh, great perspective, and he, uh, he, uh, he certainly um, often is willing to kind of put his neck out there on a lot of calls, and that's something that any uh, strategist is, uh, should be um, you know, patted on the back for, because it's, uh, it's tough business to be making such prognostications, as he oftentimes does. And I think he, uh, you know, he oftentimes will talk about his, his surprises you know, uh, for the next year, and, and he certainly kind of talked about some 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 you know, scenarios for next year. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I think he rightly um, sums up the situation as, as one of a, you know, kind of a, um, a real monetary sea change, monetary policy sea change. We have had um, some unmistakably um, shocking even um, inflation reports on CPI and PPI uh, just today, uh, the day we're recording this. And, um, you know, it's quite evident that, uh, uh, you know, kind of the Federal Reserve and other central banks are 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 going to be forced to to really seriously, um, you know, uh, retool uh, monetary policies. Uh, there there is no uh, good outcome, I, I think, uh, in terms of their policy choices, and and they're going to have to uh, make some really tough ones, I believe. Uh, uh, you know, uh, given the stew of situation situation we have here with uh, inflation, and and um, you know, it comes at a time where markets are barely off their all-time highs and, and record valuations. So it's, it's a, a unique situation, I guess, is, is the way I would put it. And, and I think that's kind of what, what uh, Steen you know, talked about in his comments. Yeah, well, Steen made one comment there that really stuck with me, which was um, he sort of sees this as the end of the road for everything. Um, you know, it's the, it's, we've talked ad nauseum about how over the past bunch of years, in fact, we could say decades, the policy really has just been to kick the can a little bit further down the road to let everybody keep doing the status quo for a little bit longer. And it seems like Steen is really feeling that 2022 may be the year where that can just really can't be kicked very further. Um, you know, he thinks that inflation is going to be higher next year than it's been this year. Uh, we talked a lot about the central banks, Fed in particular, really throwing policy into reverse. And, and you know, my question to him of, of even really can they do that given how over leveraged the system is and how vulnerable asset prices are right now at their incredibly lofty highs. Um, so, you know, that all remains to be seen, but, um, you know, we're still gonna have the supply chain issues he talked about. He also talked about um, his confidence that there was gonna be an energy crisis kind of tossed in the mix here as well. And when you put all that together, that really does you know, seem like a, a year of um, 
you know, a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty, and, and probably a lot of pain for a lot of people. Um, maybe even real physical pain. You know, there's people that are shivering in the in the cold winter. But but um, I, I, I personally find it hard to imagine that the Fed can reverse course the way in which it's talking about right now um, without the markets taking some sort of substantial haircut. Um, and I think I'm being generous with that term. And Steen had said something like, you know, 30% probability of a correction he sees there. Um, and, uh, you know, personally, I, I, I think the odds might be a little bit higher, but I don't want to, you know, put words in his mouth. But anyways, you know, it just, it looks like um, from all the concerns that he laid out at the, at the first half of the, the interview um, that, you know, we've got a highly, highly uncertain year ahead of us as investors. And so, of course, the people watching this are like, well, what should I do? And Steen did a great job of, of breaking down you know, kind of his version of sort of an all-weather portfolio that that has performed very well over the the bunch of years, and um, you know, I think some of the uh, elegance in it is in its simplicity, and also in the discipline of making sure you rebalance it and whatnot. Um, but I, I guess I'll hand it back to you, John. Do you? I guess my big question for you um, is, you know, is this a, a time where you can rely on sort of a tried and true? model like that? Or is this sort of one of those outlier periods where, you know, you might want to really dial up the safety part of the portion um, of the portfolio just because of the heightened level of risk out there? What do you guys at New Harbor think? Yeah, well, I, I'll, uh, I'll start by just acknowledging Steen's uh, kind of uh, off the cuff uh, joke that, you know, that right after uh, disclosing the portfolio, he laughed that this is probably the top for that portfolio. And you know, I think he said, you know, probably start to falter. And I think there's, you know, um, I think most asset classes, if not all asset classes, have become um, undeniably linked to the monetary uh, easy environment that we've had. And Steen, you know, referenced that the only thing in the portfolio that's truly non-correlated to all other assets is is possibly cryptocurrencies. Everything else has been tightly correlated and tightly and and very significantly affected by massive amounts of you know decade-long um, monetary easing. And that's all going to likely hit a hit a brick wall in a very significant way. So I, I absolutely think that um, there's very real risk that even a, what appears to be a tried and true, steady as she goes um, portfolio could could likely get devastated. Um, you know, John Hossman, who you've had on, and you know we're big fans of. He, he's done work, and and um, you know, there's there's uh, you know right here and now the likely return on a traditional 60, 40 stock bond portfolios never had more bleak return prospects. Um, folks at GMO do the similar kind of work. You know, almost every asset class, uh, stocks and bonds uh, across the board with a, a few exceptions are, are projected to, uh, you know, from these current levels on a, on a real return basis adjusted for inflation to return negative real turns. That's simply a function of the, you know, grotesque overvaluations that these these assets have uh, have been propped up to, and you know as much as you know we think a crash, if you want to kind of use the terminology crash, is is possible or or permissible in this environment because it certainly is. All the all the ingredients are there. You know, I, I would caution folks not to think about you know binary events, crash or no crash, but really think about um, the 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 likely path over the next decade or so because that's what most of our clients, for example, are thinking about. They're not really thinking about the next year, even though it's very hard to not be, you know, kind of tuned into the short term. And, you know, whether there's a crash or three or four crashes or no crash, but just, um, you know, kind of plodding along, the likely scenario is from these levels, the returns over the next decade are, are across most asset classes are likely to be very disappointing. And so I think that's the real thing to, to think about. Um, and the reason ours, reason for that is, is just valuations have gotten so obscene and valuations are very poor timing indicators in the short term, but they're very robust indicators of long-term returns, um, you know, five, seven, 10 years. And that's what, you know, you know crash or no crash, uh, you know, one should be scaled back and risk simply because the returns are not likely to be there in our very strong opinion. All right, um, I wanna tug at this a little bit further because I think this is interesting and I'm kind of thinking this through in real time. Um, John, so bear with me as we do this together. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of the spirit of what you're saying, you know, we interviewed Grant Williams last week and Grant said, um, 
in his opinion, uh, the people who have done very well over the past decade plus, you know, during this prolonged period of sort of disinflation that we've had, uh, you know, he, he cautions that they may very well be the poor performers going forward in terms of managing money because the game book that they know is not going to work for this new world, or this new higher inflationary world, a world where the Fed may be actually be removing the punch bowl for the first time in several decades. Um, and nothing against that uh, is meant to be a slight against Dean or his portfolio at all. In fact, quite the contrary. Um, and, and, but yet we've heard from other people like Jim Rickards who have said, uh, and Stephen himself, uh, who have said, hey, you know, diversification uh, is sort of your savior in the story, right? It's a great way to reduce risk. Um, it's a great way to um, hedge, basically, if your principal, uh, you know, thesis is wrong, as long as you're, you got some exposure to some, some other areas, um, you know, they may offset. Um, and of course, you know, academic papers forever have shown that a diversified portfolio generally performs better over time. Um, so where I'm going with this is we, we kind of have this clash of, of, of uh, you know, these models here of, of, you know, I hear you sort of saying, oh, it's, it's a really good time to sort of move to, to, to safety, you know, load up on safety here. But then these guys are also saying, hey, don't forget about diversification. Um, as you sort of wrestle through that, um, uh, I, I guess just react to that. But uh, and I know you guys have you know, d defined opinion and perspective on your own. But, you know, I think it's kind of an interesting question. Yeah, no, so diversification in, in an academic set, sense is absolutely a, a key in investing. And it, it, it stems from the reality that um, when you have different assets that are um, not tightly correlated and they move in, in different ways during different cycles, diversification is, is one of the only free lunches you can get in, in financial uh, investing. Um, you know, it's, it's basically lowering risk uh, or maximizing the return for any given level of risk taken. That's the academic, um, you know, basis for it. The reality, however, is that, and Steen pointed this out, when you get all asset classes or most asset classes suddenly being tightly correlated, they don't provide that diversification benefit. And I'm going to kind of harken back to something that we talked about with one of your guests, uh, perhaps several months ago. And you know, the notion of diversification as, as adopted by most investment managers and, you know, investment strategists is, is diversifying across asset classes, you know, stocks, bonds, you know, this or that. And when you have all these asset classes kind of suddenly being tightly correlated, you know, our, our, our thinking is that, you know, right now, this is a perfect time to be diversified ac across different strategies, not different asset classes. So for example, you know, if you're going to be in equities, Look at things like hedged equities, where you have uh, maybe exposure to, to the beta of the stock market, the broad stock market, but you have hedges on that, that kind of essentially augment the risk return profile. Um, if you're going to be looking at, you know, displacements in the market, look at, uh, for example, the lot, and this, this ties into the, you know, what has been winners in hindsight suddenly may become losers and what has been losers in hindsight could become winners. So we can talk about things like, you know, value stocks starting to outperform on a relative basis, growth stocks. We've already seen uh, a tick up on that, you know, and certainly in an inflationary environment, that would traditionally favor things like value stocks tremendously over growth stocks. And, and we might see rotation, not, you know, even if the overall stock market is challenged, there could be relative outperformance between these different, you know, uh, laggards with hindsight, but, but likely to become leaders as we, as we move forward. Uh, the resource stocks that you know we've talked about and, and Steen mentioned, uh, you know the, uh, whether it's you're talking about base commodities or or energy stocks, these are sectors that have seen a woeful underinvestment in new capacity, um, in an environment where you know low interest rates have in, has incented speculation and and you know uh, you know buying back of one's own corporate stock, you know share buybacks. Uh, you know, as, as a form of financial engineering at the expense of real productive investment and in things like, you know, infrastructure and, and, you know, new, new, new mines for resources or new, you know, uh, modern technology for supply chain uh, efficiency. Um, you know, so I, I think there's very likely a benefit in diversification of strategies and, and, you know, even into other non-traditional asset classes like, like commodities, but also in, you know, certain forms of real estate we've talked about, you know, things like, um, you know, not necessarily just like 
rental properties, but things like you know raw land or productive farmland. Uh, certainly, there's some benefit or, or possibilities in, in private uh, investments, private industries um, that certainly have seen a a, a um, a rise in their valuations, but there's still pockets of value there that you maybe can't find as, as easily in publicly traded markets. Um, so we like to think of diversification strategies more than asset classes at this point in time as, as being a key. All right, great, great, well said. And um, since I've mentioned it several times already, um, I'm gonna put up a, a link here to the interview we did last week with Grant Williams. Uh, and there Grant had really emphasized diversification, but he said most people when they deploy it, um, they're diversifying asset classes, but they're not diversifying risk exposure. And I think you, what you just said, John, is really an important way to diversify risk exposure, which is to actually employ different strategies across the portfolio, right? Um, last question on this, which is, you know, as I look at Steen's portfolio, the, the allocation there that seems to me to be kind of the, the hedge in the portfolio um, is the volatility position. Um, what do you guys at New Harbor think about about you know using volatility as a hedge because it is really one of the maybe only remaining asset classes out there right now that has a negative correlation to the S and P. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a great question. In theory, we think it could be a great um, great piece of a portfolio of a very small one. You know, I think Steen talks talked about a five percent allocation. That seems reasonably um, small, but but important. Problem is some of the vehicles to to you know, for, for retail investors anyways, to get access to that are quite flawed. They, they um, you know, have all kinds of tracking error. And, you know, maybe we're entering a phase here where the Federal Reserve and central banks aren't, aren't going to be mucking with it. But there's, there's been noted document, documentation of, of, you know, for example, the, fails, uh, the Fed selling naked put options on, on VIX, you know, essentially manipulating prices lower. Um, so the, the, the index itself has been very distorted and very uh, manipulated, I would say. Um, so, you know, if we had a pure price signal in volatility, absolutely, I think it could be something that would be quite appropriate, but it's been anything but a pure, it's actually been a quite a distorted and manipulated index. Um, which okay, well, it sounds, like the, it sounds like the precious metals folks uh, should go take the VIX folks, the volatility folks out for beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. They can commiserate. Um, all right. Uh, uh, I do just want to harken back. I'm going to mention a couple of recent videos here. We did do one, a great series with Sven Henrik. Here's another link here. Uh, he did spend some time talking about VIX, showing charts that are largely supportive of what John just said there, where VIX has been getting compressed for long, long periods of time. But then just like a, a coiled spring, it does tend to, to violently break out. And when it does, um, it, it, it can, I mean, if you're, if you're positioned at that point in time, I mean, you can really have some phenomenal returns, um, but you got to, you know, oftentimes suck up a lot of, uh, a lot of months, maybe even years, you know, waiting for that breakout and, and you know, that can be costly. So, um, all right. So John, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. There are two things happening this week or two that, that, that again, kind of give a little bit of insight to the future, but they're kind of at odds with one another. So a few hours ago, uh, the Senate announced that it had uh, just approved a two and a half trillion debt ceiling increase. So now it's going to, it's gone to Biden's desk to get signed. It highly likely will be. Uh, so if that's the case, they don't think the debt ceilings, you know, everybody can forget about it again until at least early 2023. So that's sort of a vote of, you know, business as usual going forward, right? You know, we're, we're not seeing any change of behavior. Uh, we're just continuing to try to, you know, get those blank checks uh, written for the country. Um, but uh, tomorrow we have all eyes on the press conference, Jerome Powell's press conference coming out of the, the two-day FOMC meeting that's in progress right now. Uh, so we don't have the benefit of, of that news. When folks are watching this video, they'll actually know what the announcements were. But the expectation right now is that the Fed is going to continue to be um, you know, tied to the wheel in terms of, uh, uh, you know, charting this new course of, uh, I guess I'll say tightening, but, but at least accelerating taper and then probably rate hikes after that. I think I saw right now the market's expecting two to three rate hikes in 2022, which is a complete reversal from everything the Fed has been doing or signaling over the past, you know, 10 plus years. Um, and that really could be a huge change going forward. So where I'm going with this is, it does feel like we're entering this increasingly uncertain period right now where these crazy cross currents and nobody really knows what's going to happen next. And, and, you know, a lot of the feds activity right now, maybe, maybe finally getting forced upon it, you know, by the markets, inflation's running hot. 
we know he's getting a lot of, uh, Powell's getting a lot of pressure from uh, Biden. So um, I, this is why we do these weekly videos, right? I know people are just trying to make sense of what's going on. And I think we're entering a particularly confusing time. So just wanted to give you a sense here, you know, as we wrap things up about the mindset of, and the challenges facing today's individual investor who's just trying to do the right thing by their, you know, their family's net worth. Yeah, um, you know, we have a lot of conversations with our clients. You know, we're, we're here for them. We, we, you know, different clients want to talk to us about things at different times. Sometimes they're they're related to things about their life, you know, life events. Sometimes it's, uh, hey, you know, I want to review my accounts. I'm, I'm looking at what's going on in markets. They don't make sense. I see that we're being invested this way. We're not capturing this, you know, part of the, the market advance or whatever. So we, we, we talk with our clients about that very candidly and openly. And, you know, I always try to make sure we can, we can kind of, uh, you know, adapt uh, to fit our clients' uh, self, uh, self-selected, if you will, risk tolerance. Um, but we, we try very hard to enlighten them uh, about the environment that we see based upon the data. Um, but yeah, usually those conversations, you know, uh, end up being concluded with, um, you know, you, you know, this, this is, this is really confusing. It's, it's, we show the data and, and you know, most folks, you don't have to be experts in financial markets to, to see the contradictions that um, these markets are, are exploiting or, or pointing to, to the to reality. Um, there's been a, a, a massive distortion of markets relative to reality. And even lay people can see that when we show them the data and it doesn't instill a lot of confidence. It still instills a lot of very um, strong feelings of concern and distrust and you know, wanting to be safe, frankly. Um, and we talked last week in our in our video with uh, with Grant about the um, you know kind of uh, um, I forget the theory what it's called there Adam but you know the the aversion to loss is, is prospect theory yeah. yeah prospect theory that that um, that that theory runs alive and well through the conversations we have with with our clients every day and um, you know make no mistake about it especially when you're in bubble environments like this it's about psychology it's about um, you know, emotions. It, it very much is. That's what causes these these markets. I did want to kind of revert back just to just talk about the the VIX and and uh, tie that back into my comment about you know diversification as a strategy. So when people talk about you know VIX, they talk about you know going long VIX and and being able to benefit from a spike in VIX. There's many ways to kind of capture the benefit of that uh, related to things that usually happen simultaneously. So for example, a spike in VIX usually is, is accompanied with, or the cause, or, or simultaneous observe, observation with a, a pretty significant drop in, in asset prices, stock prices especially, right? Um, so, you know, one not, need not be long VIX to benefit from that. Uh, one could just be less long stocks, or in fact, it could be either short stocks or, or long volatility um, by buying put options, or there's a lot of different strategies is what I'm trying to say to benefit from the landscape that accompanies a spike in VIX. And you know, if we do get a, a very large sustained spike in VIX and, and accompanied with that a significant stock market sell-off, that's a perfect in, environment, for example, to be adding some stock exposure, but selling call options against that stock, for example, which would likely command very rich call option premiums. That's, that's what I, I mean when I talk about a diversification of strategies. We can still you know, be investing in stocks, but doing so that is capitalizing on the on the the circumstances of the market at that particular point in time. Hey, I'm really glad you gave that clarification, John, because um, you know so many of the experts that we've had on the program recently have have really, I mean, more so than I've seen them do in the past, kind of lean into the camera and say, "Look, folks, this is the time to work with an advisor." Who understands what's going on? Um, at least work in conjunction with them to have their, you know, expertise inform your, you know, sense of what's possible and what might be best fit for you given your personal financial situation, your goals, your risk tolerance, et cetera. And um, you know, at the end of every one of these videos, you know, we have a, a little segment that tells people how they can set up a free consultation with you and your team there at New Harbor. It's totally free. There's no commitment to work with you guys. It's really something you guys do as a public service for the very same reasons, which is it's getting so complicated right now that if things potentially go the way that we think they're likely to, there's going to be a lot of people that you know become victim to whatever the stock market does uh, in terms of you know some 
fairly large correction if you know the Jeremy Granthams, et cetera, are, are correct in their predictions. Um, and we want to try to get as many people to position themselves prudently in advance to minimize the vulnerability for as many people as we can, right? And I think you just did a really good example of going through, you know, just a, a small selection of the potential options that are out there for ways to construct a portfolio, ways to minimize downside risk while still maintaining upside exposure, and whatnot. That I think the average investor, you know, just does not know even exists, or even if they kind of do, they don't have a lot of experience with it, they've never done it before. And so, you know, I think this really is one of those times where at the very least, you should get a counsel of somebody more experienced in these types of things, right? And if you want to yeah. deploy that yourself, that's great. If you've got a, you know, advisor who can do all this for you, great work with them. But if you don't, folks, and you're watching this, and you haven't done so yet, stick around to the end of the video, it's coming up in just a few seconds, we tell you how you can set up one of these consultations with John and his team. Um, all right, real quickly, if you want to find out who's coming on this program again in the future and submit uh, recommendations for who you'd like to see as future guests, just follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. I look at every single comment that you folks make to me there. And uh, as usual, if you uh, want to see us continue to get great guests, something that really does help us out is if you hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And look, it's a confusing time. We got a lot of news coming out later this week. We're going to cover it all. And whatever the markets do from here, John will be tracking it together. Everybody, thanks for watching and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.